Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Today we are looking at the 2022 rookie class of running backs. Yes, the running backs. I know a lot of you are looking forward to this one. It's an odd class, and I mean that in kind of a good way, actually. There's a lot of there's a lot of depth to this class, but it's an odd class, and I'll talk about why. First, though, if you haven't gotten your 2022 RSP in terms of pre-ordering it, it will be available April 1. I am halfway through the publication, wrapping up the wide receiver chapter this week. It's always the hardest chapter. By the end of it, I hate wide receivers by the time I get through with it. Don't want to look at one for at least a month. Well, that's not true, but but there are days that I feel that way because there's just so many of them. But it's, you know, should be another pretty good class, not as good as last year or even the year before maybe, but there's some good guys in it. But we're going to talk running backs pretty soon here. Um, but you can get your RSP at mattwaldmanrsp.com or go directly to mattwaldman.com. I'll have the sites merged at some point in the near future, hopefully. Um, but you can go to either one to find out more about it. You can look at my work at mattwaldmanrsp.com. Um, you know, if you're rather new and you want to see the depth and what other people have to say in terms of former scouts, current uh, media people, fantasy players, you name it. Of course, there's also the Dynasty Rankings and Projections Package, which is separate, a separate purchase and kind of closes the loop if you're a dynasty player on the evaluation process and studying the film and looking at the numbers and how that may translate. I update people throughout the year with that. Either way, if you buy both, it is still probably cheaper than what a lot of people would pay. In fact, I have people tell me that they feel like getting both is now finally what the RSP pre-draft would actually be worth if I charged the right amount for it. But anyway, go get that. Um, and of course, a percentage of that up to $5,000 is donated to Darkness to Light, an organization devoted to training adults on how to prevent children from being sexually abused. Um, they train, you know, um, government departments, schools, universities, um, civic organizations, and individuals. And they also help them understand how to approach the situation when a child does report this abuse so that they don't compound the situation and make it more traumatic for the child because it's already traumatic enough. So great organization. Um, they manage their money very well. You can look them up on Charity Navigator. They've done a great job with that. And I've been giving to them since, I believe, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. We've given over $50,000 to them in this time thanks to you purchasing the rsp um, we've been able to you know make some substantial donations to them and hope to continue to do that this year speaking of donations i don't normally do this but you know i, I broached this a couple times last week i'm going to broach it one more time um and that's with john hodgins i'll talk about him in a bit but for and and talk about kind of you, you know his story and, you know, something that I would encourage you to do. But first, I just want to talk to you about the running back class, just an overview. I, I mentioned it's an odd class. You know, there's, there's a lot of players in this class with starter or high-end contributor potential among the top 20 to 25 in, on my board. You know, that's a lot, you know. Um, 
But after that, there's a bit of a cliff for the talent. There's some guys in the top 40 who I think could contribute, maybe one or two who might even, um, if with luck and work and determination and fit, could wind up being fantasy-type contributors, if not lead backs. But, you know, the odds are probably lower on them. Um, but still, to have 25, 20 to 25 players, that's a lot, especially in an environment now in the NFL where there's a lot of good backs that have come in. Um, so, you know, it's fascinating to me that after the top three between you know, my fourth back and my 30th back on my board, there are, are players who I think could emerge as lead backs or, or featured starters with if they improve on some things. The thing is, is that with a lot of these guys, they um they have some holes in their games and either they're going to need the right fit immediately or they're going to need to work on it so there's a bigger boom bust range with this class um it's it's one of these classes that makes it really fun to evaluate because you can see how in three to five years we might look back and go this class was every bit as good as say the 2018 class with guys like Nick Chubb and Saquon Barkley and Sony Michelle and Ronald Jones and you know, we can go on some of the, the bigger names. You know, there are other names in that class that were really strong as well. Or a Christian McCaffrey type class with McCaffrey, Fournette, Aaron Jones. They could be in that conversation. But then at the same time, you could see where there's maybe three to four guys and that's it. You know, it, but running back is that way because of the fact of fit, because of turnover at the position due to you know, short shelf life and, and the punishing nature of it. Um, so we'll talk about the players and some of my tiers, um, what I felt about them as I finished my analysis. And I'm going to also start off with what I look for in running backs. But first, you, you know, I want to talk about John Hodgins again. John is someone that reached out to me. He he was a longtime RSP subscriber, a longtime football guy subscriber, 75-year-old man, worked at a hospital in Modesto, California, Um and about four years ago, he was victim to a violent crime, he and his wife, Janine. And they, you know, they had retired. They had set up their, they had, you know, what nest egg that they could they could manage during their lives to be able to rent a house out in the Sierra Mountains of California. Sounds like a nice place to be able to retire. But unfortunately, they were victims to what I would, you know, would probably be best termed as a home invasion. Gunman came into their house cracked his skull open, shot up the house. Um, and and basically when the, the landlord saw what happened in the aftermath, that he basically gave them notice to leave and decided to sell the home. And, you know, when you've kind of, you, you know, you, when you've put your, your eggs in that kind of basket and then something's been on the upheaval of that, that really put a loop in John and Janine's life. And so... You know, for the past number of years, they've been trying to, you know, recover from this, and it's been very difficult. And as a result, they've had to move around the country and kind of live itinerantly. Um, you know, cheap cheap motels, um, you know, in their car. And imagine being, you know, seventy five years old and living in your car, you know, or seventy years old and living in your car, especially when you've worked for twenty five years helping other people in the hospital, you know. Um, tough stuff. Tried to do it himself, you know. I mean, but he started to, he developed kidney disease. And think about all the stresses 
of being victim to a crime, probably what that means to blood pressure, you know, and being at that age and having your home basically ripped out from under you and the stress of a trial. And while the, the, the assailant was sentenced to 22 years in prison, will probably be there the rest of his life. Still, the, the outcome of everything that happened, it led to him having um, kidney disease. And so he's, you know, now they're living in a trailer that I would say is probably the conditions aren't all that great. They're trying to get back to where his adult daughter is who's suffering from some mental illness that they can be around and, and try and help her. And so that they can get some stability in terms of a living situation and John can take steps to have some stability in terms of diet and, and routine and lower stress so that it won't exacerbate you know, the situation that he already has with kidney disease and can kind of slow it down. And he can be there for his daughter. He can be there. He and his wife can be there and do that. So, you know, John reached out and it just struck me after reading the court documents that he shared and, and listening to his story and seeing it on GoFundMe that, you know, it would be, I can understand how someone probably tried to help, you know, do what they could do. And then being in that situation where the options become more limited as you get older, that it, it just got worse and worse. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, you guys can go to the GoFundMe page. I'll supply that GoFundMe page in the details of this podcast. Um, it's on a YouTube um, show as well that Mark and I did with um, on Carson Strong. You can find that there as well as on my RSP um, blog. Or you can just ask me about it. I'll tweet it out too. Um, share it. If you can't donate, I understand. You know, times aren't always easy for everybody. But if you can, uh, if you can at least share it, um, on social media, that would be wonderful. If you can donate, even if it's five or ten dollars, you, you know, do what you can. Every little bit helps. I've certainly donated, um, you know, and John and Janine are very are grateful for for you know your assistance and have been very, and have wanted me to thank everyone who has already done so thus far. All right, so let's take a look at the runners and um, talk about. What is it that I seek from the position? I know that a lot of people see me as a running back guy. Um, you know, it's not all I do, but certainly it is one of my favorite positions. And one of the first things that I look at is vision. But vision is such a catch-all term. And I really think vision, if you define it, it's probably in the quickest way is it's a catch-all term for identifying opportunities and obstacles. And I think most people only account for what's open in on the field or closed on the field at that very moment that the running back is is you know on the field with the ball in his hand running in a direction what's open in front of him what's closed in front of him or what's open on the periphery what's closed on the periphery and that's all they think about they don't think about necessarily what's more important which is seeing the field and the angles within the scope of what you know about your blocking scheme and what you know about the defense. And then that way, it's not just about what's happening in the moment in terms of what's open and what's closed, but being able to properly anticipate where the openings and closings are going to happen. That's really about what seeing open or closed is, is anticipating it, seeing what's in front of you and going, 
It look it may there may be space here, but what I'm reading in front of me in terms of the leverage of the blocker on the the on the uh, opponent on the uh, the blocker on the defender or even an unblocked defender, the position of his hips or his chest may tell me where something's going to be open or closed. Those things you got to see it that way because if you're just looking at there's open space here and you just run to open space, you wind up running into an unblocked defender oftentimes because you're ignoring the development of your blocks. You're ignoring leverage. So part of this also includes the box counts pre-snap on either side of the center, either side of the ball. How many, you know, where is the where are most of the defenders pre-snap? You know, and how does that relate to how your blocking is going to be? So that can help you identify what your first or second choices might be as you make your reads of how defenders are moving. And some of the things about how defenders are moving is identifying blitzes, you know, the alignment of the defense pre-snap. These are all things that help you fit into the equation of developing blocks. So when you look at all these things, you realize that running back is not an instinctive position in the way that people define it. You know, running back is a position built on a lot of knowledge and techniques that have to be honed to the speed of instinct. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next with our, our the next thing that I really seek, which is very interconnected with vision, and that's elusiveness. I call it elusiveness rather than agility or creativity um, because at the end of the day, yeah, you're trying to elude obstacles, but how it gets done doesn't matter. And I've seen this more often in the past couple of years when I occasionally read scouting reports um, after I've done my work. I, I'll see a scouting report or commentary, and it just sometimes sounds like that writer is, sounds more like a critic reviewing a movie or video game or, or music. They label the guy's movement as boring or lacking creativity. And I guess I get the phrase lack of creativity or isn't creative because it's probably a statement on the low volume of moves. The, the low, they don't have a lot of moves that they use. Um, but it can also veer, when you say that, it can kind of veer your mindset into losing sight of what matters. And you can get sucked into flash over substance. I mean, Kenyon Drake it was very creative as a runner at Alabama. And then when he went to Miami, he was unbelievably entertaining to me when he basically would jump cut head and basically land helmet first into the ass of his guard because he had no understanding of how to efficiently move. It was all flash and it wasn't honed to be substantive. You know, I like slapstick comedy. What do you want me to tell you? He was like the dumb and dumber of running backs for about the first year, you know, in terms of like slapstick comedy until he figured it out. And I'm glad he figured it out. But, you know, it was one of those things. Anthony McFarland's another example of a guy who, you know, not efficient at all. And I've shown the difference between, say, Anthony McFarland and old Frank Gore, you know, and showing them on the same play and how McFarland lost yards and Gore, using efficient movement, was able to get 15 on, on the same type of play with the same, you know, type of um, constrictions going on. Um, and I have that on my blog. You can see, you can look up Anthony McFarland or Frank Gore, Matt Waldman, and you'll probably see that there. Um, I, you know, when I look at a guy's movement, really elusiveness begins 
with a link between the back's vision as what I described earlier and the and the practice of using his body to avoid contact and accessing openings. I think I'm probably going to change elusiveness to mobility because I think that's a better term and I'll probably change that in the RSP in coming years. Mobility really encompasses everything. How a player gets into space, which can include avoiding and, and manipulating defenders. And the, you know, with mobility or elusiveness, the better the link between the eyes and the feet, the better the foundation for the runner to earn yardage. And efficient movement is better than dynamic movement. You know, what I'm saying is, you know, jump cuts and spin moves and all of that, you know, head fakes and, you know, really fun playground type of moves. Sometimes, you know, those dynamic moves is are the only ways to escape a situation. But I think you'd also be surprised to know that efficient movement is sometimes the only way to escape situations. And if I had to choose one over the other, I'd go efficient over dynamic. But ideally, you're going to want to be able to do both as a runner. Um, in order to do both, you know, obviously you have to have a certain level of athletic ability. Um, and it requires also a lot of work on footwork patterns and drills. But not just running through rope drills or ladder drills. It also means practicing them in scenarios that are common events that a runner encounters both between the tackles and outside the box in open space. Also, as well as running downhill versus running um, laterally or to the perimeter. A lot of these footwork patterns you see, sticks, double-ups, um, you know, spins, um, jukes, giving a leg, taking away a leg, you know, shortening and long and long gaining strides, jump cuts, jump stops, lateral cuts, pick and slides, all sorts of things that there are names for these things. They're like licks for a musician when he's soloing. And you have to learn licks in all different keys and tempos so that you can apply them musically. And as you do that, you also learn to be able to play variations off of those licks based on what fits best in the situation. What's the drummer or the piano player or the guitarist doing as you're playing that lick? Can you can you have a conversation with them? You know, you're when you're you're executing footwork, it's a similar thing. How's your blocker setting up the defender in front of you? Um, is there a is there a receiver who doesn't have anyone that he's blocking, but he's in near your path can you use him to manipulate the defender what does the defender do in response to your first and towards what he thinks you're going to do with your movement and can you get him to respond a certain way and then counter his movement so it's it's very much like a musical conversation with you know athletic ability you know it's it's a physical conversation and the more comfortable they are expressing these licks these moves that are that are patterns that they then learn how to apply practically. The the more that comfortable they are, then they the more likely these things are going to appear in their games. Because again, in the moment, they do have to respond as if this is going on instinctively. It has to be rehearsed to a level at the speed of instinct. If you don't do all this work, 
And there are exceptions to the rule. There are some really exceptional cases, but I don't mean exceptional as in once a year. I'm talking like once every five to seven years, maybe once every 10 years that you see guys like this who like, yeah, I don't really practice. It just came to me. It was just easy. You know, I, I can, I always was able to move like this, but a lot of it too is if you play a lot of football, the more football you play, um, and the more you also play other sports, the more you practice these movements, you know, in scrimmages, in practice, in games, and the more experience you have with it. If you have the right coaching, if you have the right environment to continue doing this and you stay healthy, you you get that practice. So it becomes instinctive, but it's not necessarily an instinct, okay? It's grounded. Um and if you don't have it, but you have great athletic ability, a guy like Zaquandre White is a great example. Former running back who ended up as a linebacker, and then turned out, or and then became a, a running back again. You can see this is a guy with great athletic ability, but he doesn't have these grounded skill bases in terms of how to apply them in the right situations. Because the the vision, the understanding of run. Um, of blocking schemes isn't quite as strong as it needs to be yet. And so for him, you get a he's more of a runner who's like a boom bust gainer who's you know, but he can be unprepared at times and while the moves are flashy, he's kind of a yardage loser at, uh, a lot of times in areas that a guy like Zonovan Knight who isn't nearly as athletic makes strong gains. So you know, short area, you know, that that's very important to understand is that the athletic ability is is awesome, but only if it's grounded in understanding and you've really layered that knowledge of footwork in and have it in a practical um, skill set that you can draw upon. Otherwise, it can get a little wild and you have either great success with it because your athletic ability, but then you also, you know, you're your carry chart may read minus one, minus three, two, one, no gain, four, minus seven, 50, you know, whereas a guy like Zonovan Knights might read two, four, seven, eight, one, no gain, 10, 20, 17, eight, you know, and at the end of the day, you still wind up, you wind up maybe with the similar amount of yards or maybe even less than like a, a guy who has his spread all over the place, but he puts his offense, the guy who has the more consistent gains without the, the low-end losses, keeps his offense on the field, keeps them in, in viable down-and-distance situations. They score more, and as a result, he's on the field more, and at the end of the day, he may end up getting to close out a game with a tired defense and break off some of the long runs that the guy who can't keep his defense, his offense on the field and may have scored a touchdown in that game, but also lost, you know, maybe 17 yards worth of, you know, of, on, you know, five or six of those carries doesn't. And then they're behind and then they have to throw more. And unless he's a good pass catcher, you know, so it's kind of one of those things that you, it's a layer that's important to look at. Sometimes the the up and down guy can wind up scoring as much in fantasy as the guy who is, you know, consistent. But it is about fit, and and there are other factors involved too that you want to make sure that you're looking at to make sure that the guy's a complete back who can stay on the field and be there regardless of situation. 
Another thing that we look at with mobility or elusiveness is, you know, the short area quickness. This is a vastly underrated athletic component. This, this is about getting in and out of breaks fast, accelerating through cuts fast, stopping and starting quickly. This is way more important than speed because speed is overrated for running back play, basically because of how much emphasis is placed on it and, some, and to a degree where it's placed well ahead of other skills that are just harder to learn and are actually needed to elevate the athlete into a productive player. The only And there's exceptions to this. There's exceptions to everything. But the real exception is when a team has a great offensive line, a great blocking tight end, a great blocking fullback, and they're in a perimeter-based running scheme that accentuates simplistic decision-making for the running back, and speed is the accentuated fit for the offense. San Francisco 49ers, perfect example of that. Um, you know, And you can see that with Elijah Mitchell, with Debo Samuel, and the yards that they gain. You could even see it with guys like Jeffrey Wilson who aren't that fast and who aren't that, you know, who are actually, I'd say Wilson was a... a a more had better decision making than Mitchell, had better footwork than Mitchell. Um, Trey Sermon had better footwork than Mitchell, had better has better decision making than Mitchell. But neither of them have the speed. And this was why pre-draft, while I ended up having a guy like Trey Sermon as my number one back last year, pre-draft, I said San Francisco was the worst fit, but I changed my mind when they traded up for him and thought that maybe they they sought him out for a specific reason, and they were going to go more towards some of the inside game as well as the outside game, and they didn't do that. And they wound up sticking with going with Mitchell because they liked his speed, and they and they um, they really they really felt like that's the game changer for them. And when you have Trent Williams, George Kittle, and Kyle Uzcheck, and then blocking blocking receivers or guys who can block like Ayuk. And Samuel on the outside, um, yeah, it's just like, just get there fast, man. We're not going to worry about all the other details. And it's worked out for them. But, you know, the thing that for most offenses, and I know that, you know, outside wide zone is something that is becoming a a bigger deal um, in the league. But even so, long term, you want guys who can make the cutbacks. Because defenses are eventually going to play, you know, defenses don't get to face or don't have to face a team loaded with Trent Williams, George Kittle, and Kyle Juszczyk. I mean, Miami probably won't find, um, won't be able to build an offense that has three players on that caliber of skill set for their outside running game. So that means you're going to have to be able to cut back more often. You're going to be able to have to manipulate more often. So acceleration is a is more important than speed that phase of reaching your top speed even if your top speed isn't like elite if you can get to your top speed faster than the elite speedster can get to his or even get to or i would even say if a guy like zonovan knight can get to his top speed faster than james cook who's faster than knight could get to zonovan knight's top speed then you'd rather have Zonovan Knight as in between the tackles player. And I'm not saying this is what it is, but that's just a good example of that. Because if it takes you a long time to reach your top speed and you're playing in traffic, 
what good is your top speed? But if you can get to your top speed and your top speed is good enough to get through a hole and threaten the secondary, even though it may not pull away from most safeties and, and cornerbacks, once you get 20 or 30 yards, you're not going to break the 80-yard gain. But you're going to get at least 7 to 10 on a well-blocked play. Or after you make someone miss when something a lineman screws up and you find a cutback and you can get through that because you stop start really fast. Again, elusiveness, change of direction speed, acceleration. Those things are more important. Um, contact balance and power. Certainly, you know, those things can be very important um, with finishing. You've got to be able to finish plays because at some point you're not always going to get through holes. And you've got to, in order to be able to, you know, bleed out runs where maybe you, you find a solution that gets you one or two yards. But if your pad level, your knee bend, your stance, your hip alignment and, um, and, and you know, locate and alignment from your hips to your pads are good enough. You might be able to bleed two to three more yards out of it. Now you've suddenly gotten a, a four, five, six-yard gain on a play that looked like it was reserved for one or two. And so you don't have to be unbelievably strong. You have to understand leverage. Certainly strength is a strength is a baseline. You have to have a certain size baseline, and size to me isn't height. It's more about weight and distribution of that weight um, and strength, core strength, um, from basically from your knees up to your shoulders. You know, do you have that core strength to be able to drive when you make contact? Can you withstand contact and punishment? You know, and so pad level, knee bend, stance, and hip alignment to pads, very important. We're going to talk about that with a couple of prospects here. And head alignment. You got to have your head up when you, when you drop your pads because if you don't, your back bends in a certain way that curves and you just fall right down as soon as you hit contact. Now, receiving, blocking, and routes certainly have their important areas um, in terms of making a difference for how you would evaluate guys. Um, and certainly some backs are better receivers or, and can give you an advantage in the receiving game. Um, and then some guys don't block at all because of how good they are as receivers. They're not going to be used that way. Whereas others, you, you're going to really want them in there as pass protectors who can then, after they make a play, can kind of find their way through traffic to get into an open area underneath as an outlet, which can be very important. And um, and then some guys, you want them actually running option routes against linebackers, safeties, and even um, you know nickel corners, and being able to have an advantage. You know, so so there's a lot of variation that those three areas can have in terms of you know what you're looking for and how that fits into an offense and how well that can be expressed to the benefit. Um, of the, that back's production, the offense's production, and for fantasy players. All right, so let's take a look at some of these tiers. We got about a you know, fifteen to, minutes to a half hour left. We'll probably take another half hour here, wrap this up at an hour, and look at some of these tiers. I'm not going in order with any of these players. I'm just mentioning some prominent players in my tiers, and some things that I thought about them. Some of the things I'm going to tell you are either things that I think they need to work on or things that I particularly like, maybe a little bit of both, but it's not obviously going to be a complete scouting report. You can go to mattwaldmanrsp.com and, and get my little pamphlet, my little flyer of a scouting report. You know, it, it, you know, no, I'm kidding. You know what it is. So tier one, tier one has four players in it for me. Um, 
And I think all four players will wind up being starters. I think two of them, at least two of them, will be immediate starters, probably three. Um, and, and I think they're all guys that are pretty safe to draft. One of them that I really didn't think was going to be all that safe to draft when I studied him last year but thought he had starter upside or at least contributor upside was Brian Robinson of Alabama. He improved his burst, his long speed, which are just smaller layers, but the burst was a little bigger than obviously than this, the long speed. His, his, his pass protection, um, his understanding of certain um, blocking concepts was a little smoother, so his vision got a little bump as well. And we know that he can run through people, break tackles, multiple tackles, wraps, reaches, and hits. He can bounce off them sometimes multiple um, times in the same play. Um, you know, I don't think he's necessarily Derrick Henry. I mean, he's not nearly as big as Henry, but he's a he's a safe 220, and he's quick. He's got good footwork. He's someone that, you know, he may not be, you know, he may not be entertaining as a f- with his footwork, but he certainly is effective. He can be efficient and effective. He's more efficient and effective than maybe some people realize. So I like him, and I think that within a couple of years, he's going to be a lead back, if not a starter, and he has soft hands. This guy can catch. Um, He can pluck the ball low. He can catch it away from his frame. Um, He's gotten better in that regard. Um, And so this is a guy who's, who's worked his way into a good position. And the fact that he was behind a lot of good backs, you know, during his time at Alabama doesn't make him a bad player. You know, when you're on one of the, you're arguably on the best team. You know, if you look at the level of teams they've had over the past five years, Alabama has been a dynasty or, you know, one of the dynasties in college football. And for him to, you know, basically be toiling and waiting his turn and continue to, do his thing, uh, you know, listen, he's earned it. Um, you know, Kenneth Walker, you know, this is a guy that, and, and by the way, if someone, you know, if you're listening out there and you don't like the fact that I say something like this is a guy as I'm talking, I'm doing this off the cuff and I'm not taking public speaking classes. Um, I'm busy studying film. And so if, if, you know, I appreciate the, I appreciate the, um, the critique, but you know, chill. Okay. Just chill. <laughs> um, I don't know. Something about that just was, was interesting to, to have that, to have that brought up. But anyway, when I look at Kenneth Walker, he reminds me a lot of JK Dobbins. And J.K. Dobbins was the number one back in my class two years ago, and unfortunately, you know, dealt with the ACL injury at the beginning of this year. Otherwise, I think if that offensive line, if the Ravens stayed healthy with J.K. Dobbins, I think J.K. Dobbins and Jonathan Taylor probably would have been vying for the AFC rushing title. Uh, I think that he's that good. And when you look at Walker, he has that sudden speed. He has the great footwork. He's a very smart runner like Dobbins. Um, and I think that someone who gets him will be getting a J.K. Dobbins, Ray Rice-like 
performer on the field, which means catching the ball, running for tough yards, patient running, and and breakaway skill. Um, Brees Hall just makes it look easy. I think that, in fact, maybe too easy. And that's the thing. It's interesting. I have, I kind of have a low key worry about him. Not enough to not take him. Like I trust me. I I think that if he's there, you take him, and you just hope that hope that my little low key worry ain't anything, you know. But he just makes it look so easy sometimes. And there are some things that he needs to get better at. He, you know, how he uses his hands to catch the football can be a little more consistent. His blocking can be a lot more consistent, but so was Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor didn't even make the effort a lot of the time as a blocker um, in the way that he should have. And he was still, you know, he was still very highly ranked by me. I believe he was my number one or number two. I don't remember at this stage as after going through so many players this year. But I know he's one of the top two players. Brees Hall certainly, you know, those details I think he'll get better at and he'll become an even better player. He can teleport in terms of his acceleration. Nick Chubb had that teleporting ability where you have a defender who has an angle on you dead to rights at the entrance of a hole and you get past him, you know, and he can't even touch you. That's what I mean by that. Brees Hall has that quality to his game. And when he sets his mind to not wanting to go down, he'll have some runs that that you look and go, did you channel little Adrian Peterson to your game? And he's not Adrian Peterson, you know, but he he certainly, he has these moments when you watch him and you go, something pissed him off. Like I saw watched him in a game where he fumbled the ball. And in that next drive, he ripped off a couple of plays that you could just tell he had made up his mind that he had enough. You know, and sometimes when you play angry, you stop thinking. When you perform angry, you stop thinking. You just play out of your mind and you let the things that you've ingrained in yourself take over without over without overthinking. And sometimes that's when you're playing at your best. And Brees Hall has those moments. Um, it took me a while to warm up to Isaiah Spiller. And I think the reason is, is that when you have him running gap schemes, especially counter, he makes some fundamental mistakes that as Jay Moyer put it when we were having, he saw one of my videos on Twitter, said that's just a very fundamental like issue. Like if one of my high school running backs did this, um, I would be, uh, you know, I would probably be removing him from the game to have a conversation and maybe giving him some time off because he'd have to, he has to understand that you can't make some of the decisions um, that we just, we saw from Isaiah Spiller on a play like Connor where tried to bounce a play outside when it was very clear that the play needed to be developed behind the pulling blocker um, a little bit more to the inside. And Spiller has these habits of doing that on on some gap plays where he just abandons the 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 primary crease. And on a gap play, there really is only the primary crease and very rarely a cutback. Um, so that's a little bit of a low-key concern. The same thing is that his pad level and hips aren't always aligned at the point of contact. So I've seen him take on, you know, light defensive backs, you know, 175, 185 in weight, take them on head on. But then just as he's 
heading straight for them. He'll turn his his pad so that he's using one shoulder to try and really bury his shoulder into the chest of the the defender. But then he turns his hips to the boundary too. So when your hips when your hips are pointed to the boundary and you have one pad pointed downhill, it may seem like you're focusing all your weight into your pad, except that your hips aren't aligned. And you're, with your hip and your base being pointed to the boundary, suddenly there's very little force with that contact. And that defensive back is able to basic, is able to stalemate him right there or push him backwards. And when you have a back the size of Isaiah Spiller with his burst and speed not being able to finish plays because his hips aren't aligned, that's something he's got to work on. He's got to do better um, from that level. But listen, put him in an outside wide zone scheme, put him in, in different types of zone schemes, and he his footwork is very good. He makes good cutbacks. He has the speed and the acceleration you're looking for. He can break tackles when his body's aligned in the right way, and he can be both efficient and dynamic with his mobility. Um, so I like Isaiah Spiller. I think that there's a little bit of, um, you know, the best of what Ryan Matthews could do to Isaiah Spiller's game, which is pretty darn good. Peak When I, Ryan Matthews was right, his game was right as rain. Um, tier two. This is an extremely large tier. It has a lot of players in it. A lot of them have Tier 1 upside, but they have enough holes in their game that the right fit and development track is going to have to happen for them. Two great examples of this are top-end athletes who have a lot of things to work on. Um, one of them is Pierre Strong of South Dakota State. Pierre Strong, 438, I think, 437, 438 speed, somewhere in that vicinity. Right now, I could see the Miami Dolphins drafting him. They, they're going to get themselves some Chase Edmonds. He's a smart runner. He's a good cutback runner. He's shifty. He can catch out of the backfield. He can do a little bit of everything for you. He can start for you. But then they can invest in a guy like Strong a little bit later on who has that high-end speed element and who could probably help out right now but not have to completely carry the load. And the reason that you don't want him completely carrying the load is that he doesn't press creases deep enough right now so he's not going to be strong enough of a cutback runner yet in that outside zone scheme and that's going to be important with outside zone wide zone however you call it um with the dolphins if their offensive line and tight end and wide receiver play isn't good enough or on a tier remotely on a tier of like the 49ers it probably won't be so you're going to need a little more versatility out of your back to create for you as opposed to your 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 supporting staff setting the meal for the running back. So Strong needs a little work on that. His cutting also needs a little bit of work. He has a habit of where you have the lead leg that's going to make the the make the you know the plant and then you and then you drive off that leg to go in the opposite direction. It's the inside leg that he uses that's supposed to be the base. It comes too far in or too inside of his shoulders, and it's almost like under his head or close to the plant leg. And as a result, he's off balance when he makes the plant, and he slips, or he gets knocked over with some, you know, you know, just kind of glancing shots that he should be able to run through through his plant. So 
Strong loses his footing multiple times on film in situations like this that he's going to have to get better at because obviously you you want him pressing deeper so that he can make cutbacks. And, and, and if he presses deeply and has to make a strong cutback and he topples over, that's no good. When he's open in the open field, can't make people miss, that's no good. He's not going to be able to, able to unlock that speed and acceleration. And I also think Strong has enough... Um, enough um, physical upside left to add maybe another 7 to 10 pounds of muscle. My comp for Pierre Strong is a guy that, you know, their coach, their new head coach has had in San Francisco, and that's Raheem Mostert. There's some Raheem Mostert to Pierre Strong's game if he can work on these things. So Quandre White, love, love the possibilities with Zaquandre White. This guy, um, if I could, if I were a qualified running back coach, like if, you know, I certainly can identify things that are good and what need to be worked on, but how to teach them, I don't have the slightest clue. But if I were that, if I were that type of person, had that kind of skill set, I would want Zaquandre White as my client because he has the, the burst, the long speed, terrific movements in terms of like dynamic. He can be efficient, but he doesn't quite fully understand the range of blocking schemes that he will probably encounter in the NFL. And his footwork work can get kind of wild. He'll make plays that you look at are like highlight plays, but he could have done things more efficiently and may have not had to make as much of an effort or, you know, to to even get half the yards that he could get if he were more efficient. So he's the type of player, too, as a receiver. He's kind of up and down in that degree. I've seen him in, in a game where he scores a touchdown on one in one half and then gives up a pick six in another because of the way he uses his hands. You know, former linebacker. He had to go through um, Iowa Western Community College and become a JUCO star to get back to South Carolina and South Carolina. I mean, listen, I don't do a lot of logo scouting, but I can tell you over in recent years, and this has been kind of validated by people I know who are coaches in the South Carolina area, South Carolina program deserves some criticism in terms of they recruit really good athletes, but they oftentimes have some issues with, you know, developing these guys or these guys developing or or having the coaching that really helps these guys move along. It's more about exploiting their athletic ability for as easily as they can exploit it. And if it works for South Carolina, fine. And you know, they're a they're an SEC program that, you know, they're a middle tier SEC program. You know, and if they're happy with that as a athletic department, fine. But it, it gives a reputation among scouts that in the past, you know, four to five years, probably more like seven to ten, even with different coaching regimes, that these guys are always intriguing for their athletic ability and, and flashes of top-end skill, but there's a lot of things to work on. And I think Zaquandre White kind of fits that. Um Two guys who are kind of on the opposite, kind of sort of on the opposite end of that spectrum who are in the same tier and who I like a lot are Zonovan Knight and Keontae Ingram. They're 
I think they're good athletes. They're just not top-end athletes. Though Ingram has, I would bet, has close to top skills with short area quickness and acceleration. We just didn't see it. I see it on film. I think that's there. Whereas Knight, maybe not so much. But their skills are strong in terms of vision, footwork, um, you know, catching the football. Zonovan Knight runs very good routes, and he's he's excellent with the techniques catching football. Might be low key the be- he might be the best receiver in this class. I mean, you're you know when you talk add speed into the equation, there are other guys we're going to talk about who probably will overtake him. But right now on film. If I were to have to field a football team and say, right now we're playing and I need the best receiver on the, you know, who's going to give me steady catches of outlet passes and get yards after that and help me move the chains, Zonovan Knight is one of the top three guys on my list, maybe the top guy. Um, and for 206 pounds, he runs like he's 226. It's it It's crazy that he's somewhere between... 206 and 210, I think. He'll probably be heavier once he gets into a camp. I'm, I'd be surprised if he tries to get his way up to about 215, 220. But he's a he's a punishing runner who also knows how to use his use contact to kind of deflect harder contact, kind of strike first and then spin away. He he has contact balance for days. I've I've watched him take hard shots to his chest from a defensive tackle running downhill and meeting him and Knight continuing downfield, not falling forward, literally staying on his feet and getting yardage before he's wrapped by somebody else. This is a guy with very good contact balance. Keontae Ingram's a favorite of mine. I love his solutions in terms of you know, identifying penetration and being able to make people miss, and he can combine his elusiveness and his his contact balance and power to get positive gains. He turns a lot of negative situations into positive situations. He's versatile with the gap and zone games. You can give him both. He's a good receiver. He has enough burst and short area quickness to to move the chains and give you big play rushes, which are 10 yards, you know, 15, 20, 30 yards. He can give you that. Occasionally might break a 40 or 50-yard run if the conditions are right with the defensive lineman and the blocking scheme, but he's not a breakaway guy. I think he's some I think if he were a little more powerful or a little faster, Marshawn Lynch would be in the aspirational category of what he would want to be working towards as a player. I think right now he's more like aspiring to be Kareem Hunt who is a fine player. One, of, I think he's still one of the top 10 backs in this class. And he can certainly make people miss. He catches the ball well. He can run between the tackles. He combines everything. He may not be unbelievably fast, but he's quick enough to be a real playmaker and a real problem for defenses. I think Kande Ingram might have that upside. If he doesn't reach that upside, I think Chris Ivory is, a, is kind of his, his floor. You know, and Chris Ivory, when healthy, could start for a team and gain yards for, and be a good yardage gainer who could catch the ball too and was a very tough player after contact. Um, three players who I think are the most intriguing in this class and, and in this tier are um, Isaiah Pacheco, James Cook, and Kennedy Brooks. 
Um, Pacheco, and I think all three of them were difficult evaluations. And I think that there are going to be a number of people who will tell you that they were probably difficult evaluations for them on some level. Um, the, the, the most difficult will probably be Kennedy Brooks because his, I think he's the most patient back I've seen in years. I think he has the micro movements, the ability to make small movements to avoid defenders in close quarters, along with the uh, with just enough acceleration and power and pad level and contact balance to to compensate for what I would say are committee contributor level athletic skills at this time. But he runs zone and gap very well. He just has a knack for working through multiple obstacles on a play against high levels of athletes. He, you know, DeMarco Murray, who I've talked to DeMarco Murray back when he was a prospect, not when he was a running back coach at Oklahoma. But I remember talking with him and interviewing him at the Senior Bowl when I did some, you know, did some contributing for the New York Times fifth down. And... Murray talked about gaining some appreciation after his early bouts of injuries at Oklahoma after following Adrian Peterson. He had to basically work on becoming a student of the game rather than being just an instinctive athlete. And you could tell the injury had humbled him. So did the fact that he, coming from being an all-athlete in Nevada to Oklahoma and having to face other top athletes, he really learned some things about that. So when I hear DeMarco Murray now being interviewed about his backs and saying, you know, Kennedy Brooks is just this guy who just, you know, he doesn't look like much compared to the types of guys we get in here, but he just gets it done. And he just, he's always getting it done. And that's just a nice way of saying this is a very technically savvy back. He's probably the most pre-snap savvy back in this class and was the most pre-snap savvy back in last year's class. Um, so if there's a guy who could who could transcend what I would call baseline level numbers to be able to um, play in an offense on a regular basis but not be a star, if there's a guy who could transcend that, it might be Kennedy Brooks in this class. I think I think he's a fine back. I'm just I can't wait to see whether or not he does transcend it. James Cook's fascinating because not only can he move like his brother Dalvin with the curvy linear moves and the and the and the smooth silky kind of style to work um, around and weave around traffic, he has a really good feel for his blocking schemes and can I and work away from penetration and just kind of calmly find where the openings are going to be and anticipate them and get into that open space and then use that great acceleration and speed. To, to break big plays. I think his speed is better than his acceleration, to be honest, because I think he gets caught from behind by linebackers more often than I would expect from the reputation that he's gained as a speedster. Um, but he's what I'm interested in seeing is, does is his vision and decision-making good enough that despite lacking great po- you know the power you'd want from a starter or lead back, could his vision and footwork and burst be enough for him 
to get a lead back role. I'm going to, I would say if someone pushed me on it, I would say no. But I think that you give him the right role and he can be a productive player um, and more than just a gadget guy. But his range of either going from, you know, his range of outcome could be less used gadget than you'd like, kind of like, or a plus gadget guy like Nicole Hardman where every year fantasy people are talking about, this is going to be the year, you know, and then it, and then the other half is completely down on the guy. And he does maybe just enough to keep a job, but not a, and he does to help the, he helps an offense, but he doesn't really do enough to be a huge stat getter. James Cook could be that guy. That's my concern, but you can see both the both tracks to a high upside and, and a lower ceiling. Isaiah Pacheco, I really like Isaiah Pacheco. Man, can he catch the football. He snatches that football like a receiver, high or low. He plucks it low. He has just very good tracking ability and solid fundamentals with his hands, so you don't see him clapping onto the ball. He knows where his hands need to be based on the location of the target. And he is fast. He gets, and his acceleration is just as impressive. And he's 215 pounds and can lower the pads and run through people or drive through wraps and, and get that good body lean and two to three or four yards through uh, a crease. The thing with him is that I, what's complicated about him is that he played with a lot of linemen who just weren't quick enough to get to their spots that they needed to on certain design plays to the perimeter. And I think Pacheco started rushing his process just to get yardage because he knew if he waited for his left guard to get around the center, it might never happen, and he'd wind up tackled in the backfield. So oftentimes you'd see this kind of lack of trust with what was going on with his blocking scheme because they gave up a lot of penetration. He was best on quick-hitting plays, and you could see sound decision-making and reading of leverage with those. And then you'd see other plays where it looked like he willfully ignored it. And I thought he made the right decision oftentimes with that. But I think he's going to get graded down by other people because of that. And as a result, you're going to see people talk about how he has things to work on with decision-making and vision, especially with that he veers off track or things like that, I bet. Something to that level. But I think that Pacheco might be a much better decision maker than people realize. And he could very well end up with a career that is as good or better than, you know, the the backs in the first tier. He's a guy I definitely um, am interested in seeing how this works out. And I would, if I had to bet, I would bet on him having that starter lead back upside. Um that you're looking for. He's much closer to Cam Akers, you know, where Cam Akers, I joked a couple years ago, was the incomplete masterpiece. Um, I'd say Pacheco is the hidden masterpiece. Um, I think he's very good. Um, tier three is a fit-based landscape. Um, I think it's strong this year, um, but the landscape for the league isn't for strong for them. So they may never get a real shot. Some of these guys may get typecast, but I'm going to go quickly through some of them. Um, Hassan Haskins, um, you know, from the standpoint of resume bullets, you know, the things that he can do, not to the depth of how well he can do them, but the things he can do, he's one of the two best backs in this class. Blocking, catching, running for power, um, base level quickness, base level um, acceleration, base level power, um, you know, 
pass pro, all those things. I think he rated number two in my breadth of talent. But that doesn't tell you how well he does all of those things. And how well he does all those things, he has work to do. The pad hip alignment needs to be better so he can maximize his power. I think he's better on gap runs than he is on zone runs, and this is more of a zone league. And when they are a gap league, they like speed. He doesn't have great speed. Um, he may have good short area quickness and acceleration. I wish he worked out so that we could have seen that and get a little bit of a little bit better indicator. But still, I like what I see with Haskins. Um, on a certain level, but I don't know if he's going to have the fit to actually get an opportunity to do what he does best. Tyler um, Goodson, speedy, very good hands, excellent routes. He can run the option routes. He can make the plays in the middle of the field, beating off coverage linebackers and safeties. He played in in a in an outside wide zone scheme in Iowa, but I was told by someone who has good knowledge of that program that the coaches there really emphasize staying to the play side and not cutting back on wide zone. And Tyler Good Goodson is a very good cutback runner. So you kind of eliminated that and kind of been a stickler for something where your offense wasn't quite good enough to always win those um, play side openings. And I think that hamstrung Tyler Good Goodson a little bit. I think he can be a better player in the NFL than he was at Iowa, and he was pretty good at Iowa. He's got that deep speed, good cutback runner. Again, he can be a little better with pad hip alignment to to make the most of his power because he's only in the 200-pound range. Um, but he could be a very good scat back for a team with the right fit. Um, maybe even a, you know an Austin Eckler type. Maybe there's a couple guys who can give you that potential in this class. Damian Pierce, I think he's an example who of a guy who he has he has play strength he he has potential as a blocker because he's physical but he can be too aggressive a lot like um I think Haskins in some regards too he catches the ball extraordinarily well he can win contested plays he has good cutback ability but I think his he has a low ceiling I think his athletic ability gives him a lower ceiling and you're looking at him as more of that either red zone. He's like a, he's like a Damian Williams type. Like red zone, two-minute drill receiving game. If you need him to be your starter, he can deliver for you if you have a good offense around you. But you really don't want him as your every down starter. But you want him on your team because you know he can be that versatile and fill holes for you. A guy who isn't that versatile right now, his catching is not very good. His run blocking has some, or I mean his um, pass blocking has some um, upside and potential. Just has to keep work on it, working on it. But he runs out like outside zone like he was born to do it. And that's Abram Smith of Baylor. Guy is well built. He's had two ACL tears. And so you can see that the bend just isn't quite there. It may not be back quite yet, but he, he had a tear in high school and a tear and as a freshman, so I think he's about his bend is about as good as it's going to get in terms of flexibility and mobility. But his decision making and anticipation of cutbacks and how to manipulate front side creases and make the most of the play, coupled with his speed and his power, he could start in the league in outside zone. He's another guy I could see Miami going. We're going to take him, you know, and just go. We're going wide zone. This is our guy. 
and we'll complement him with a smaller guy like um, Chase Edmonds, who we can have you know as a pass catcher and fill in and do a number of different situational things for us. So Abram Smith's a guy to watch who I think has that kind of starter upside. Um, Tyrion Davis Price, four four eight forty. I was kind of shocked by that, and then I went back and looked, and I was like, okay, I see it. Maybe he needs a little more of a runway, but his footwork. The agility to transition downhill um, is really good um, from a from a perimeter approach. He can do it in one step, maybe less sometimes, and he can do it as if he's making a hard cut. And he he has force players, defensive backs, who are coming down into that flat to try and keep him inside. Or he has those guys whiffing on air the way that he can set that up. I mean, SEC-level athletes just whiffing. And then when he drops the pads, he'll just run flat over a safety. He looks like he just looks like he's going over a speed bump. Um, and he's a great blocker. If you, if you want to look at a guy, uh, maybe not a great blocker. He could become a great blocker. I'll put it that way. He had a, a, an impressive performance against UCLA in the opener. When you watch him, and you'll see that he does a nice job of being able to, um, you know, stand up, block, cut, block, read blitzes, um, really understand his assignments, and sustain contact against all levels of defenders. If you, you know, I don't know if I'd call it a clinic, but if you want to see an impressive job of blocking from a college player in this class. Tyrion Davis Price versus UCLA is a good game to watch. Um, so there, tier three, three guys that I'll mention just to keep an eye on on, on the lower part of tier three. You know, below, the other guys here. Cameron Harris had an, um, a knee injury in October, but he was really getting better with his decision making and his movement. He's a wild child in terms of movement, but you can see that he's really worked hard at it, and I think he could be. He could, if if he's continued to work on it and healed up, he might have an or he might be where Kenyon Drake is now, as opposed to where Kenyon Drake was before. He could wind up being a starter in this league. I think he has that kind of skill. So he's someone that might be a late round or UDFA due to injury, who could surprise. Another one who could surprise: Georgia Tech's Jordan Mason, big back, kind of an understudy or sideman to Jameer Gibbs. But he runs for power, very elusive, um, good speed, enough quickness to get into the secondary to take advantage of that. Um, he can be a little too aggressive as a pass protector, can catch the football. Um, he ran in a scheme where maybe he's going to have to expand his understanding of certain blocking schemes. But if he does and gets the opportunity, another guy who might shock. Someone who I think is more of a role player but I really liked is Raheem Blackshear. He was behind Isaiah Pacheco at Rutgers, and I think he was like, forget it, I had enough, and ended up working behind Khalil Herbert at Virginia Tech, and he got to start this year. And he's agile. He certainly can block. Very good blocker, and he's not a big back. More of a scat back inside. Catches the ball well, very good on screens. Terrific vision. Really good footwork solutions. I think he can be a contributor or a you know two-minute type of back. So that's good. Guys that 
I didn't like as much as how I, you know, how much I've seen their names pop up. Rashad White um, just felt like his decision making. He's an athlete. Again, if you, he's an athlete who catches the ball really well, but he can get into a crease and there's a linebacker waiting for him. And instead of dropping the pads and using his size, he tries to avoid the, the linebacker and ends up working into advantageous leverage for another defender and loses yards when he should understand who he is and take that guy on or try to beat him with a move. He, he runs to open space more often than he run than he anticipates where the openings are actually going to be. So that's problematic with him. But giving, you know, he's going to have upside, but he's not he's not a complete back. He and he has enough issues that I could see him never really getting his career off the ground as a contributor on a long term level. Um, so he's got a lot to work on in terms of vision, decision making, pad level footwork, blocking. Um, but the receiving game strong. He's certainly speedy. Um, he can be powerful. He has to figure it out. Tyler Algier, um, great story, but I think he underestimates the angles that he that defenders have in pursuit. I think he underestimates his own or overestimates, excuse me, overestimates his own quickness and burst, which is kind of just baseline to be in the league. It's not really baseline to be a starter. Um, and I think that he doesn't press creases deep enough. So when you look at, and then he misjudges angles as a pass protector. So his ability to really handle angles is an issue. And that's kind of a rude issue for being a running back when it comes to anticipating obstacles and openings. And whether it's with or without the ball, that's a problem for him. So I think he has a chance to be in the league, but I, I'm not optimistic about his ability to overachieve the way he overachieved at BYU. Um, Kyron Williams, I was never, really never quite understood him as, as his game. He's, I, I like his toughness as a blocker. I think he's a physical player. I think he has nice movement skills, and he can, and he's quick enough. But I don't think the acceleration is there. I've seen him get caught way too often from behind by linebackers before he could even finish accelerating, um, and in the short ranges of the field in ways that I just didn't think the athletic ability is quite there. And I don't think he presses creases tight enough. Doesn't manipulate well enough. Um, he has the moves that look good on an Instagram or on a on a TikTok or or on any type of video that's gonna show him running routes or things like that. But I think there's I think there's the substance to his game may not be at the level that it needs to be for him to be anything more than a contributor on like a you know, passing downs or in two minute situations. Tyler Beatty, kind of the same thing. I think he's better than Kyron Williams in terms of upside. I think he can be a a scat back in the league. He has really good acceleration, very good speed, low center of gravity, can run through tackles and hits. But I don't think he's a starter candidate. I think he's more of a he's more of a committee guy. If he's going to be a starter candidate, um, I don't know. Maybe it's more of a DeAndre Swift kind of situation than it is an Austin Eckler type of situation. Eckler can work between the tackles better than Swift. And I don't even know if I would say Beatty's on Beatty's not on Swift's level either, for sure. Not 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 close. But close, but he's good enough to contribute. I think he could have some fringe fantasy value, but I don't think he. It's going to take a lot 
uh, in terms of fit for offense and some improvement, especially with how he finishes plays, um, with defenders coming downhill, for him to be a starter. Devontae Price, he's another one of those guys that give him a great offensive line, tight end, and and an option, and he could be the Elijah Mitchell of this class who, you know, put him in a wide zone offense and his speed will do the trick and he can run through some, he can run hard and run through some contact. But I don't think the subtleties of his game are enough for him to be in any other system right now. Um, and I think that even so in the offenses where he'd be a good fit, they might require more of him to make cutbacks because of the fact that he's not going to be playing with an all world team. If it isn't the San Francisco 49ers in those positions I talked about. Um, and then there's three guys that I would say who are those potential out-of-nowhere producers in two to four years, either as a steady reserve who your team's happy they have or as a surprise starter. Um, Britton Brown, man, there's something about him at UCLA that kind of that James could maybe add weight and be that James Starks type of player, the former Buffalo um you know, prospect who went to Green Bay and became a starter for about a year or two. Britton Brown looks like he could probably add that weight. He has good speed and burst. I think he runs pretty well, makes some good decisions. Um, there's something there for his game to build on. Tavian Thomas, uh, a transfer from Cincinnati who went, I think, Juco, then was homeless for a while, and then wound up at Utah. He can run outside zone. He can pound the ball. He's like six feet foot, maybe in the 220 range, 6'1", 220, somewhere around there. Fast enough, kind of a Mike Anderson type, not as big as Mike, but certainly can be physical and has enough one-cut movement to, to be productive in the right scheme. TJ Pleasure, uh, Pledger's on the opposite end. He's been a backup with Oklahoma during their run of really great backs, and he was also at Utah. Pledger can catch. He can return kicks. Kind of reminds me of Bobby Rainey, a guy I really liked way back um, who played for the Buccaneers and for the Ravens. And when they put him on the field, he had some big games. Um, he's a guy that, you know, he can be a good cutback runner. He has good contact balance due to his low center of gravity. You know, at worst, I think all these guys can be quality reserves. So there you have it. That's my thoughts on the running back class. Again, you can get the rookie scouting portfolio at mattwaldmanrsp.com or mattwaldman.com. You can also get that with the Dynasty and Draft projections. It's a separate price for $24.95. Closes the loop. Either way, you, either one, you're going to be happy. You get both, you're going to be ecstatic. And then, of course, if you know, listen, man, if you can help out John Hodgins a little bit, I know he would appreciate it. I would appreciate it. Um, I'll have his GoFundMe you know, in the details of this podcast. Thanks again. Have a great week.